As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. in its generative form is already taking over epistemic tasks, things like writing a letter or if you're religious, writing a sermon or, you know, demonstrating uh, a particular useful uh, application of AI that will take over a task previously done by a human being. So we're already seeing that kind of level of um, replacement and automation in our systems that could lead to people losing income. In robotics and in AI, um, deep learning gives you the ability to instruct the AI to reprogram itself if it would help it better meet its objectives. Now, there are some guardrails and parameters around that, I'm sure, but again, um, given how hard we're trying to catch up with exactly how do you give precise instructions that are the ones you really mean and given how bad we are as that are humans um, it's quite difficult to know whether you've absolutely made that as safe as possible by only giving the right instructions to the AI such that it would be able to make quotes the right decision which is this thing about alignment and control. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable the show that gets Christians and non-Christians talking. Before we begin today's show, a reminder that we always want to hear what you think of our discussions. So please let us know your thoughts by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leaving messages on our Premier Unbelievable Facebook page or on Twitter at unbelievablefe. Also, you could win our monthly prize book giveaway simply by signing up to our newsletter through registering on our website, which is premierunbelievable.com. So don't miss out for your chance to win. And now for today's discussion. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that tries to get Christians and non-Christians alike thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. I'm Roger Bolton, and this week we're going to talk about AI, artificial intelligence, as well and truly with us, designing more effective drugs, reading scans better than any human, Chat, GPT, mid-journey are two, just two of the things that have burst into our consciousness. Some experts would now like to try and pause the development of AI. Is it possible? Should we do so? Or should we embrace it and make it more like us? Does it threaten our unique place in God's creation? Those are some of the questions we're going to discuss this week. And looking with me round the corner to see where AI is going... And what we should do about it are two experts. Eve Poole, OBE, is a British writer, theologian, and has served as the Third Church's States Commissioner. She's one of our most senior lay people in the Church of England. She was the first female chairman of the, well, I suppose not a chairman, first female chair of the Board of Governors at Gordonston School in Scotland, 
and our books include Capitalism's Toxic Assumptions and Leadersmithing. And she's been writing about consumerism and God, but her latest book is Robot Souls, Programming in Humanity. Uh, just before we go on, Eva, can you tell me what is leadersmithing? Is it the equivalent of a blacksmith? <laughs> it is a bit, or a silversmith or a goldsmith. Yeah, it's taking the idea of leadership as being too static a way to explain what the day-to-day -day craft of leading is and borrowing from the world of craft to articulate better the messiness um, and the journey towards mastery that's required to get that right. So it's a guidebook for potential leaders. Um, but is it for more? Is it for, yeah, for all of us? Of I mean, is it for all of us or just specifically focused on people who want to be leaders investors? It's for all of us. It's a sort of DIY manual, which is if, you, if anyone's following you, you're leading. So you might as well figure out what the craft skills are and figure out how you, you deploy them well. Because um, individually, those individual things like listening or asking difficult questions or coaching, all those things aren't necessarily difficult. But sometimes it's difficult to coordinate them well, do them under pressure, scale them. Um, particularly when you're having an off day. So it's a book that takes seriously the neuroscience of learning um, and muscle memory for leadership and helps you figure out how you might tool yourself up um, to be able to do that in all kinds of different environments. You know, I should have read that book before, Tooling Up and so on, before I did this discussion, but never mind. Also with us is Beth Singler. Uh, she's assistant professor in digital religion at the University of Zurich. And prior to that, she was the junior research fellow in artificial intelligence at Homerton College University of Cambridge after being the postdoctoral research associate on the human identity in an age of nearly human machines project at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. Beth explores the social, ethical, philosophical and religious implications of advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. And, and can I ask you, Beth, how did you get into this? I mean, when did you have a moment where you thought, right, I have to devote myself to this subject, or is it a gradual awareness? Well, for me, it really starts with being a huge geek and a big science fiction fan from quite a young age and being fascinated by the stories we tell ourselves about the possibilities of artificial life forms. Uh, but then from a career perspective, it was really that postdoc position at the Faraday Institute that brought me more from looking at... Uh, digital religious movements online, new spiritualities, new religious movements into more consideration directly of artificial intelligence and religion. And you're certainly obviously a scientist. Are you also a religious person yourself or someone who is simply fascinated by religion? I, I tend as an anthropologist to describe myself as agnostic. I think that's a good approach to have as a digital ethnographer, as a cultural anthropologist. So I don't tend to ascribe to one specific religious tradition, but I'm interested in many different interpretations of what's happening with artificial intelligence. And Eve, obviously you're a member of the Church of England, and do you come at this as, as a scientist and as a Christian? Yes, I suppose so. I'm, I'm technically uh, an Episcopalian in Scotland these days, um, but when I was third commissioner, I was a communicant member of the Church of England. I suppose I'm, I'm a cradle Christian. I have a theology degree. But I also have a business degree and have written about economics as well as um, looking at AI now. Um, so I wouldn't describe myself as a scientist. I think I'm uh, a business leader with a theological background who's very curious about humanity, um, particularly given my role teaching at a business school for so many years and trying to figure out how we, how we perfect ourselves as humans, should that be possible, um, either on our own or with the help of AI. That seems to me when we come to AI, so the world divides into two. There are those who are just fascinated by its possibilities and dwell on the benefits and whatever. 
and that the rest of us, I suppose, say, were just played scared. So just before we get into it, are you scared at all, either of you? Really, <laughs> really scared about what we're facing? How about you, Beth? So I tend to make a distinction between existential hope and existential fear in people's discussions of AI. And I don't think I fit neatly into either of those. What I do tend to say is that I have concerns about the near-term and current uses of AI. And I'm a little bit more skeptical and agnostic, as I say, about the far future interpretations of AI, which tend towards more sort of exponential, even eschatological beliefs about AI. And how about you, Eve? Are you more frightened or excited by the possibilities? I think both. Um, I was taking my little twins to the beach in North Berwick, and they were washing around diggy holes and splashing around in the shallows and building sandcastles. And behind me uh, on Barrick Law, there was um, an Iron Age fort. And I thought, well, gosh, this is a very timeless picture of children pottering around on beaches um, having a childhood. And I suddenly felt a wave of sadness that if this great plan to optimise into AI ever went ahead, there would be no more children on beaches because robots don't have childhoods. And I wanted to understand is there anything special about us? You know, do we have a right to exist beyond um, a a any you know future where there is uh, a singularity and AI can take over on most fronts? Um, and so I really wanted to explore that by trying to understand what is special and different about us, if anything, and what should our relationship be with AI? Well, that's a very profound thought about our uniqueness or temporary uniqueness and et cetera, et cetera. But perhaps we should define terms before we start because... Um, a lot of people wouldn't be quite clear, uh, and that was including me until recently, about what of artificial intelligence is and whether actually it is intelligence we're talking about here, or, or sort of a form of cleverness. So um, what is AI, Beth, today? What can it do today before we go on to where it's going to lead? What can it do today? Well, you have to understand at first the origins of the term in the 1950s when basically a group of 10 men got together, decided to combine several different fields like cybernetics and systems theory to create this thing, this field, this object they were talking about called artificial intelligence. And there's a fantastic quote by someone called Robert Walensky who talks about how in trying to define intelligence, they looked around at who they thought were intelligent people and they decided that they themselves were intelligent people <laughs> and the two things they were particularly good at was solving theorems and playing chess so their definition of artificial intelligence was very much structured on their own culture of what they thought they were as intelligent beings now we sort of dial up to today and that's sort of there still in our the dna of our conversations about ai if it can solve particular problems we're going to call it intelligent, but it doesn't have any of the embodied intelligent or the general intelligence that humans have. It's very narrow. It's sometimes referred to as narrow artificial intelligence. It can do specific tasks to even a super intelligent level. The way that uh, you know uh, AlphaGo can play the game of Go is super intelligent because it's played against itself millions of times. And that's simply something humans can't do to improve. It's a completely different attempt at intelligence but it can't then get up from the table and decide to go make itself a cup of tea. It doesn't have general capabilities. It's very focused on one task. So yet, we probably should say. And so when people are looking at artificial intelligence now, I think they're beginning to understand the way in which it, uh, we always use the word revolutionize, don't we? But significantly change work and do, Eva, a range of things 
that um, that we can't do or can do it better than we can or more quickly than we can and so on. So it's a form of, you know, form of industrial revolution in one way that we're looking at. And a lot of businesses would be focusing on that. And a lot of people were worried about job losses and so on. And those are our real issues. But they don't. Um, it, it's a long way from that to saying that they are replacing human beings as human beings. What do you think human beings can do now that AI cannot do now? So um, my thesis about robot souls is all about junk code, which, which is my way of describing what I think humans do that AI doesn't currently do. Um, and for the reasons Beth has articulated, there are lots of things we never coded into AI because we thought they were not intelligent and, and probably dubious, or we just found them perplexing and uh, unable to you know, be, be turned into zeros and ones. And, and so there's a whole range of them. Um, there are things like uh, emotions, um, although we can code some semblance of emotional responsiveness into care bots, for instance. Um, things like intuition, which is incredibly hard to define or articulate, let alone code into anything. Um, our, our ability as humans to be uncertain um, and to hold several thoughts together at once without resolution. Um, our ability to um, make mistakes, not just for um, kind of mechanical learning, if you like, which is something that AI is absolutely programmed to do, but also for moral improvement and moral learning through the element of conscience over time to guide future decisions and to de-risk us, but also our natural propensity to make meaning in everything around us and to tell stories, um, stories that persist through the generations. So there's a whole range of things that we instinctively do um, that ha have been left on the cutting room floor as junk code because they weren't considered intelligent, um, but they are fundam fundamentally the things that define us as opposed to machines. But Beth, if... Um is this something which, which you think is an insuperable problem uh, for AI uh, to, to, to look at those things which we perhaps in ourselves most value and look at the way in which we can, as it were, transpose them, if that's the right term? Or do you think we are dealing with two uh, ultimately separate identities here, uh, separate identities, I suppose, humanity, which is a far more complex and AI, which may be far more intelligent in a narrow sense and more developed, but is on fundamentally a different line. Well, I think Eve's point is very important that the simulation of some of these things is very, very simple, very easy. And you don't even actually need to do it to a very sophisticated level before humans jump in with their tendency to anthropomorphize and see the machine as more human-like than it actually is. So asking that question is, is really difficult to answer because we may just have a simulation of the equivalent of all our uh, messiness that Eve talks about, all that junk code, uh, but not actually the thing itself, but how would we know? So the, some of the debates about AI is about how we formulate tests to decide whether it's intelligent, whether it has sentience, consciousness, all these large, difficult terms that we use almost interchangeably but we don't know how to get to that point. So again, I'm going to remain agnostic on the answer to that question because I just don't know if we're ever going to get to purely properly conscious AI. But then, you know, devil's advocate will say, do we always have consciousness in humans as well? Right. Just hold it. My brain is going off in various directions at once. <laughs> Not good for an older man. Right. Uh, but I want to ask you just about, the real, about just one thing about the real reliability of AI, Beth, here, in the sense that I've assumed 
that it is better than almost, it's wonderful at taking information that exists, processing it more quickly than we could do and coming up with a certain result, but that it is potentially um, vulnerable in terms of, uh, of validating or checking the information that comes in in the first place. So at a simple level, if I program in here, give me a picture of a successful you know, business person, it'll probably give me a 35-year-old white male because that's the situation at the moment. Now, is that an inherent flaw uh, that, that, that can be remedied or not? And it is something that we need to be just aware of when we're dealing with AI today. It, it really depends on what form of AI you're talking about. It's such a large umbrella term that at the moment it's taking in a lot of different formats and approaches. We are talking about there with using a prompt to get an AI art example is generative AI. And it's not thinking through the question that you're giving it. It's forming correlations based on probabilities from its data set. So for instance, yes, a lot of our data, our human produced content over hundreds, if not thousands of years, tells the machine that yes, if you want a picture of a, I can't remember what you said, a smart person. Yeah, or no, a successful or, business person. Our data will tell it that successful business people tend to be white men. That's the existing data. There's the, the bias is inherent because that's the culture that we have. So yes, the expectation is just, it looks at the probability of what it should produce. It's not making a decision about what it should produce. It's correlating information based on your prompt. Now, one of the really interesting thing to me about, about all this debate, uh, and I want to you know, shortly go on to the worries that we have before we look at other matters, is it's making us, it is, well, is it? Eve, making us think more, more deeply about what it is to be human, because now we have to think of how we distinguish ourselves at the moment from AI and what we want, whether we're unique and whether we want things to remain unique. So do you think that's going to be a really interesting debate about what it is to be human? That, that's um, really what I'm hoping to start with this book, because it feels to me that in the short term, we're in danger of having conversations about becoming less human. So in educational policy, it's all about piling in behind um, the STEM subjects, um, and bleeding out budgets for humanities because they're not seen as useful for jobs to be able to pay off debts, all that kind of stuff. And if you think about um, many of the STEM subjects and particularly how they're taught at undergraduate level, they're all exactly the kinds of things that an AI can already do. Um, and of course, there are gender reasons why we want to particularly get women into STEM at the moment, but that's a very short-term thing. Um, so an awful lot of our, our concern about education at the moment is, is absolutely going in reverse of all the things I talked about, all the junk code things. Um, so the thing that was making me so worried and cross was that we weren't having a sophisticated enough debate on what really makes us human. We were still trying to compete with what the machines may already be able to do and may be able to do in the future. And um, because I think there does need to be a season where we think really hard about, are we special and precious? What does make us special and precious? And therefore, how do we reflect that in all of society, not only in education, but in also in, you know, all the investments we make around human flourishing? And also, I mean, it, 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 one of the assumptions is that there are, there are um, how can I put this? There are answers to everything, or rather there's a specific answers to everything. When our answers often reflect not just our state of knowledge, but our predispositions in a whole range of ways. So that's extraordinarily difficult to, to, to factor in, Beth, isn't it? I mean, I remember I can see 
when I was taught history at O level, well, you know, here we are, nine causes of the First World War, bang, 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 bang. Remember, then that's what you have to do to pass the exam. And I can see how you're doing this. But when I look back at what we thought at my youth were the nine, or was thought to be the nine causes of the First World War, we realized it was rather more complicated than that. And we realized there's a whole raft of things we don't, still don't know, and the motivations of key people and so on. And, and so do you think there is this danger just to pick up, in a sense, what, what Eve has been saying about not defining, not being aware of the greater complexity, that we think that AI is, in specific areas, going to give us definitive answers, when even AI will not do that? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a very strong narrative, and it comes out of our science fiction to a certain extent, but it's there in popular discourse as well, that AI is somehow going to be superior in its rationality and its neutrality and its objectivity. And therefore it makes a good lens to see the world through. And it's, you know, there's various different projects, Google's doing this, other big companies, to make it more of a user interface for us, that we use these generative forms of AI to search for information, not going to particular websites online through Google or going to a book, if you want to go back further, but just using AI to see the world. Uh, Demis Hassabis, the founder of Google DeepMind, has described it in several places as being the ultimate scientific instrument for seeing reality. And all that we're doing is really adding another layer of possible misinformation, disinformation, as I say, with a correlation machine. It's not necessarily giving you the right answer. It's giving you the most likely answer. Um, you can search for information on, on yourself on ChatGPT, and it will say something that's perfectly reasonable but completely untrue. So the concerns, really interesting, going back to Eve's point about education, the concerns about the use of generative AI like ChatGPT in essay writing really reflects where we've gone to with education, that we want to produce almost sort of binary answers and AI could give us that and therefore it's going to disrupt education instead of thinking about how we develop more critical thinking and more kind of uh, those obtuse skills that are really useful. Are we, is that too pessimistic in the sense that some people would say, well, actually, no, we'll gradually get to a situation where we'll, we'll, we'll delegate certain things to AI, but we will then create greater space for ourselves for considering alternatives, the whole range of other things. In other words, we can use our time at university, tutorials, wherever it is, more profitably now, because a lot of the time that was spent on ascertaining certain things, you know, AI will do for us. And But you seem to suggest that actually... We may not be sufficiently aware of the limitations of AI and that we may be believing in its potential too much that actually that's a danger. Over-optimism over in a sense about its possibilities. Is that? It? I want to ask a moment, Eva, about other dangers, but is that a danger you say is a real one? Yeah, a lot of my work is looking at the tendency to over-trust and over-believe in the hype of artificial intelligence. Even you mentioned in the introduction, the big pause letter where several main figures in technology said, let's hold up a minute, was also a process of encouraging people to see AI as more dangerous than it might be in that more exponential sense. And actually giving those people the chance to sort of capture the regulatory space by saying, we're important, listen to us will define what the problem is instead of listening to people who are right at the coalface right now with interactions with AI and seeing it take over their jobs. Artists, writers, I have so many friends now who are saying, well, I just didn't get this pitch I made because they decided to use ChatGPT to write it. We're already at a stage where we're seeing societal impacts before we get to this 
sort of super version of AI that people do really feel that they could trust and almost see as godlike. Although let's hope it's like a lot of things where, you know, there's the overreaction, then you come back on, on whatever it is, you know. But but can I just, just before we end this section, uh, Eve, talk to you, get, uh, pick up that thought about the industry leaders who who said, pause, hey, ho, we, we, we're worried where we're going, we need a wider debate. I mean, it sounded to me a bit like, um, you know, uh, people who were doing... Um, uh, doctors who were getting involved in very complex uh, situations they hadn't anticipated and want, wanted ethical, moral advice and thinking that they needed a wider debate. Is that, do you think, what industry leaders were about? Or should, I be, more, should we more, be more cynical about that? How seriously should we take that request for a pause coming from parts of the industry itself? I, I think it, it's a difficult question to answer because there's so much cynicism about what, what game is being played here. But there are certainly a number of experts in AI who feel they've unleashed a monster and, and there was kind of no exit strategy. There wasn't really any thought about what this would, would be and become and where it would go. And there's quite a lot of mutual suspicion because if you think about it, pretty much all AI is in private hands and very little of it is in the public domain. So... We don't really know what we're dealing with. They've only released chat GPT, so we can train it for them. Um, so so I think there are a number of organizations are looking over the wall and thinking, well, we've just done something fairly frightening that we're keeping stum about. I wonder if they've got something even worse. And so I, I think there's a general panic that, that maybe this has started to get a bit out of hand because the second you invent technologies that allow these things to reprogram themselves, you need to know that there would be some way you could control that. Um, because if you were trying to create something that can think faster than humans um, and you allow it to make decisions ahead of humans um, and, and you don't have the right guardrails in place, that, then of course there's a reason to worry. Um, so, so I think it is a legitimate worry and also possibly a realisation that that we have essentially programmed a master race of psychopaths because that's what we thought was important. You know, just absolute rationality being entirely focused on optimizing decisions with you know, in on your own, really, without much consideration of other people or particularly not asking for help or talking to others. And so I'm seeing those letters as very much a cry for help, um, particularly to theologians like me who've not been in the conversation to say, well, look, there's a whole realm of other ways of construing human intelligence and what we are and why we have all these things that you think are junk code that may be helpful to you in trying to understand how do we make these things safer. Uh, but is it also going to be cynical or worry that somebody will so get such a breakthrough, they will so dominate the market that other business leaders will find themselves entirely out of business and therefore you will find one company, if you like, running the AI world. Is that a real, and who knows, if another Elon Musk will come along. I mean, is that a real worry that somebody could achieve such dominance? Well, we've dominance? always had that with any, with any big technology. So I, I don't think that's a new problem, you know, whether it was the railroads or, or any other big disruptor um, that has been invented. There's always a concern about monopoly, which is why there's legislation and, and a lot of policy thinking about it. Actually, what's more problematic in this environment is that we know from human nature and the whole ecological system that there is strength in diversity, that the reason our species manages to keep going and that the world manages to keep going is that there is so much difference. Um, and the problem about homogenization in AI is you design one AI, one super AI, and we know that in any other environment that would be hugely risky because you just need one virus to wipe that particular version out. Um, so so there is a, a, a more catastrophic problem potentially because if you only have one 
uber designed to hack, then every single hacker in the world will be pretty motivated to solve that problem once and for all. Um, so there's a really interesting debate, I think, about diversity and how much diversity we're we building into our thinking around AI rather than imagining we will design one super intelligence, which would probably be a disaster. Well, I'd like to pick that up in in our next section, but we're just going to take a brief, bit, bit of a break for the moment. Uh, remember, we'd always love to hear from you, the, the listeners, uh, but don't forget you can get in touch with us. You can email at us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media at, at unbelievable, capital F, capital E for Twitter or facebook.com forward slash premier unbelievable uh, if you want to act, interact on our Facebook page. Still a massive amount to talk about. Uh, you're listening to Premier's Unbelievable with me, Roger Bolton, and my guests today are Beth Singer and Eve Poole. We'll be back in just a moment. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of this debate about AI, robots, and some might say the future of humanity. Should we be able to try to make robots more like us? What does that mean? What makes us human? With me are Eve Poole, whose new book, Robot Souls, has just come out, and Beth Singler, an anthropologist, and much more, and talking to us from Zurich, where she's an assistant professor. Um, let's confront some of our worst fears. What are the worst realistic fears about the future development of AI, Beth? The things that don't necessarily happen but could if we don't attempt to regulate. So there's, there's two aspects to that question. There's the actual societal impact and there's what we can do about it. I'm going to start with the second because that's a, that's a really big debate right now. There, there are actually options for regulation that are being pushed to one side by various different corporations. The uh, Some of the figures behind the pause letter asked for greater regulation and then organizations and nation states and forms like the EU said, here's some forms of regulation we'd like to bring in. They went, oh, well, we just won't have our product in your areas. So we know there is a difficulty in regulating this space, but there are existing forms of regulation for technology and corporations that could be applied. The first question about what are the immediate harms? Well, we're already seeing them because AI in its generative form is already taking over epistemic tasks, things like writing a letter or if you're religious, writing a sermon or you know, demonstrating uh, a particular useful uh, application of AI that will take over a task previously done by a human being. 
So we're already seeing that kind of level of um, replacement and automation in our systems that could lead to people losing income. And it might not be as simple as, oh, the transition towards the factory structure in earlier centuries meant people were directly made redundant. It might just be people become underemployed, that they find the tasks and the, the jobs that they were required to do before become smaller and smaller and smaller until they're made redundant. So we have to be very aware of that societal impact on people's day-to-day -day lives and also the decisions that are being made by them, made for them by these systems. So for instance, if you apply for a mortgage now, it's quite likely that your existing data set will be scraped over in order to make that decision. Uh, if you go into medical treatment, there may be a form of a rec uh, visual recognition being employed on your scans to decide what you have and what can your treatment can be. There's decisions being made about what kind of drugs are available. We're implementing all these forms of narrow artificial intelligence already, and they're directly having an impact on people's lives and their livelihoods. I mean, regulation normally comes about uh, either because uh, ordinary people are just so worried and upset about things, they demand that politicians take action, or, you know, we hope anyway, far-sighted politicians and others see what's coming, decide there's a need for regulation. Uh, do you think regulation is, is A, possible, and B, likely, just as it were, to, to hold us where we are before we go on to the question of where we're going to go? Well, well both, but it's about whether it could be effective. Um, we can certainly buy a load of regulation out there. Uh, they will definitely have to do it in order to control you know, panic globally uh, by having this entirely unregulated as it creeps around uh, snatching jobs. Uh, just to anthropomorphize there. Um, but, but there is a question of what, what is law for? Um, you only ever have to have law when normal behavior has broken down because for some reason people aren't behaving in the way they ought to. Um, so there's a prior question for me, which is why would you have to regulate AI? Um, and is there something we can learn from this sudden need to have a global panic about regulation that suggests we've got the design wrong? Um, and actually, if we correct the design, we'll need less regulation. Um, and that also reduces risk, because if you're only going to try and control these things through regulation, you're only ever as good as a nation state can be in applying uh, law. Uh, and as we can see on even basic things like whether corporations pay their tax, you know, we're quite rubbish at that. So relying on regulation, uh, imagining that might solve problems, it, it is is really sweet idea, but, but we just know it's not true. Well, the, the, the rogue nation theory. I mean, if people of my age brought up, you know, in the uh, post-war, uh, there was this naive assumption that liberal democracy would triumph, et cetera, et cetera, and that ultimately the, the nuclear standoff worked because there were rational people on either side. And I don't think we allowed for the gentleman to pleasantly run in North Korea, and I'm not sure we ever anticipated that, you know, they'd be fighting in the trenches between you know, 100, 100 years after the First World War, the trenches will be occupied this time by Russians and Ukrainians and so on. So I think we've, there's been a big, in some ways, for my naive generation, quite a big, big, you know, warning call. There'll always be, what you're saying essentially, are you, is there always rogue, going to be rogue players? And therefore regulation is possible. But we do have regulation which is often relatively successful. Are you saying, saying in this case, Eve, that, that, that a, you either have a regulation in this area that works, you can't have stuff that works relatively? Well, no, we have to have regulation. I, I just think that um, in order for the regulation to be good, you need to know what you're regulating. And because very little of this is in the public domain, 
there's a danger that the current wave of regulation is addressing problems that are about the AI of five or 10 years ago. And by the time those rules have worked their way through various legislatures around the world, AI will have moved on again. So there's that sort of um, chasing and catching up problem. Uh, so, so of course we need to regulate, but we need to... Well, well, sorry, just to interrupt you, isn't that therefore a case for a pause? You're, you're suggesting that the, the regulators are so far behind the curve that they need time to catch up. And yes, the suggestion yes. some people in this recognise that. Of course, for all kinds of reasons. But, but I think there's also something about transparency. And until we really know what we're dealing with, it's very hard to figure out how you could best regulate. Um, and, and so I, I think there is a lot of catching up that needs to be done. Um, but, but you would have to assume that there was a pause taking place. And I don't think it would be safe to make that assumption. But are you pessimistic about the possibility of regulation? Will, will, it, will it always be involved in regulating for yesterday? Yeah, there are a lot of difficulties. I think there's some specific instances where we can see that it might work and specific instances where it just can't work. So, for instance, uh, recently a judge ruled that anything created through generative AI, like AI art or text-based material, is not covered by copyright. So that's not top-down regulation, but that's a case-by-case -case example. But that just means that curtails some of the enthusiasm for generative AI in the creative spaces where people's jobs are going to be replaced. That might slow things down long enough, long enough for us to make that decision, do we want to replace our artists and writers? But a second example, recently I saw that uh, a form of generative AI had been used to create a guide to mushrooms. But if you followed this guide to mushrooms, you would die because it was recommending that you eat poisonous mushrooms. Now, you can't regulate against that unless you say you cannot use generative AI to create texts that are then sold online, in which case you have to do away with the entirety of text-based generative AI. You can only go and pursue those particular individuals that have created something harmful. But proving harm and proving responsibility in that regulatory space is very difficult. Um, it's, it's rolling out, as you said, the speed is rolling out much too fast, but the pause really isn't about slowing down for regulation. It's about concern about this more exponential view of AI, that it's going to turn into something that will decide to harm us. And this, as I said, the, my skepticism about the pause comes because people involved with writing that letter immediately carried on with their projects. Uh, Elon Musk was one of the signatories. He immediately has set up his own Twitter slash X based AI unit to scrape all the data that we've been supplying Twitter, now X, for almost decades. Uh, so they say one thing, but they do another. So we have to watch what people are actually up to. Eve, I hope you don't uh, take this wrongly, but you're pretty plugged into the establishment in many ways. Is this a, you know, people are worried about the next election in this country 18 months ago. They're worried, worried about the next election in the United States, but are they worried about anything more than that? When you talk to policymakers at the top, politicians and others. And of course, I'll, later on, I'll ask you about the consequences of this for churches and for, Christian, uh, for Christianity. Um, are they seized of this? Or do you see is it, it's a very slow waking up going on? And it's a very slow waking up. I mean, I'm involved at the moment in the university sector. And, you know, in the space of a few short months, we had um, Oxford, Cambridge and the Russell Group banning ChatGPT. And then saying, oh, well, maybe we'll let you use it, but you have to declare that you've used it. Um, and now there's an, another bit of guidance, which is, well, why don't we proactively and positively use it? And here's some guidance. So, uh, you know, th there's, there's little, little excitements. And this is all about plagiarism. And, you know, we had that with Wikipedia and we solved 
the previous plagiarism with the web in general with Turnitin, and now we've got to just get better models. But but that's entirely missing the point, um, which is this has the potential to um, rewrite the way the whole sector operates. Um, it's not just about our kids cheating on their essays. So I think there's quite a lot of fiddling while Rome burns um, because it is really difficult to get into this area and it's really difficult to find out about it. There's quite a lot of sort of um, trespassers beware and leave it to the big guys and all that stuff going on. So it feels impenetrable. It feels terrifying because we will be brought up with sci-fi. So we assume it can only go one way or another. Um, and so I think I think there is a lot of um, willful blindness about it. I think there's also um, a, a real problem about who is getting involved in this conversation um, because it has been left to some very small niche areas in society um, and, and particular personalities and gender, I would say. Beth and I were involved um, just this last weekend in Greenbelt on a panel and it was unusual because it was an all-female expert panel on AI. Every single photograph you see in the press, panels on AI, they're all men. Um, so I do think that women need to get more involved specifically. Um, I think we need to get more involved in understanding the whole realm of different AIs because as Beth says, there's lots of different things we're talking about here. Um, and I do think the establishment does need to understand this isn't just about a showy showcase, a, you know, national international global summit to show that the UK is taking it seriously and bunging money into the technical aspects. It's about a, a thoroughgoing policy debate about what we want our relationship with AI to be. I think that's really important. And yet, you know, that you detect usually in this situation uh, two, two reactions by ordinary people like myself and others. First of all, it's either hopelessness, you know, it's all too complex, just hopelessness, or in terms of politicians, that's fine, that's very interesting. I want to win my seat in 18 months' time. Okay, I know, for example, take the debate going in London at the moment about extending uh, ULES scheme, you know, which was originally brought in by the Conservatives. Um, you know, they're, they're confronting the reality of opposition when they have to explain things through. And a lot of the politicians are pulling back, as they often do. So here we'd be asking, uh, it's a very big ask of politicians in many ways, isn't it, here, to say effectively, um, we are talking about something which is not of immediate impact, but it's of such profound, will be of such profound change, we have to address it now. And we haven't even thought of it, and we haven't got policies. I mean, there's such a time lag, it seemed to me, in these things, but maybe inevitably, you know, universities, think tanks, politicians, and then the rest of us get involved. I mean, Beth, do you, have you noticed in the last uh, two, three years, a real change in the people or the depth of, if you like, not depth, how how widespread the conversations are starting to be now. Can we be optimistic at least that it's moving out from relatively small areas to a wider range of public debate? Well, yeah, I want to go back a little bit further than three years to about, uh, maths in my head is very hard, seven years ago when I started my postdoc on AI specifically. And very early on, I went to a conference in New York on AI ethics. And on my journey, I took a taxi to the train station to carry on. And my taxi driver, very friendly person, asked me what I do. And to keep it short, I said, oh, I work in AI. And he starts gushing enthusiastically, like, oh, it's amazing what you do. You're really helping the world. It's, it's brilliant what you do. And I'm very surprised. And he said, well, you know, you're helping people have babies. This is fantastic. Because to him, AI is artificial insemination. <laughs> so we, <laughs> this is seven years ago. I do think the situation has changed now. But for a long time, it was an unknown unknown. This term, I mean, Rumsfeld comes in for a lot of abuse for his unknown unknowns. But it's true. For some people, it's something they don't know about and they don't know what they don't know about it. 
And increasingly, yes, we've, in the last year or so, with the greater accessibility of generative AI like ChatGPT, the fact that OpenAI, I've got some problems with their approach, but they started out with a very closed approach. More recently, they've gone more open to live up to their name and let people use the technology now been invested into by Microsoft, and it's going to be in all the Microsoft products. Everyone is engaging more and more with artificial intelligent products, and they're being more and more aware that they are. It's still overhyped. Something like 40% of companies pretend they have AI in their product and they don't. So it's very hard to know when you are and you aren't. But I think generally the literacy around AI is increasing. It's still got its unfortunate pockets of over dystopian hype in the press when a very mundane story is illustrated with the Terminator picture. And people then instantly, of course, go to that more like dystopian end of the world scenario. But I think generally, yes, the, the conversation's growing and it's particularly growing in the religion and AI space as well. I think that's somewhere I started out back in 2016 and I've seen that exponentially grow. Well, let's now move from the, the present to the future and to Eve, to your, your book, which is called Robot Cells Programming in Humanity. Um, I asked the obvious question, how do you program in humanity? <laughs> Well, I mentioned in the first section my idea about junk code and all the things we haven't programmed in. Um, and when you start looking but at... But just you don't think they're junk. I mean, it's an interesting phrase, but actually, it, you, does that mean you they are regarded as junk, but you don't think they are? Absolutely. If you, if you think about how junk code is used in the trade, it, it tends to mean in strings of code, some zeros and ones or whatever their modern equivalent would be in coding. Um, that is a bit confusing. It's not quite clear why it's there, but people are a bit scared to delete it in case it's actually part of something rather crucial that is driving the whole design. So job code could just be perplexing, bizarre, possibly redundant extra bits. Um, it's also used by programmers to obfuscate so that it's harder for their code to be copied. So quite often they will um, mask the actual kind of live bits of code by putting a load of junk code around it. So it makes it harder for people to copy. So Whichever way you want to use this as a definition, it's quite a useful definition for all those things that we have left out of AI, either because we're not quite sure why they're there or because whoever our designer was, um, whatever we think about that, um, may have made it less easy for us to see exactly how, how coded we are. So what specific things would you think of programming in? And it obviously leads to the question about whether ultimately you're going to create robots that are more intelligent or sensitive or whatever than we are, but let's not get that yet. What would you program think it'd so be possible? So we talked a bit about we talked a bit about consciousness and, and that is one of the concerns that people have about AI that somehow if we reach that stage where AI is definitely conscious, we've kind of lost it and we have to, you know, give off and go off and, and play golf and, and game over. Um I think it's actually much more about free will. Um, because if AI has something that looks like free will, then you do lose control of it in the same way that we've always had that problem with our children when they have minds of their own and start going off and becoming goths and, you know, being anarchists and all that kind of thing. Um, so what, what's going to happen if we lose control of this? And that's why you get these big letters about control problem and alignment and all of these kinds of bits of jargon. But if you think but, but, about but hold on a design, second, hold on a second. I'm sorry, forgive me, but I'm, I'm so, so far behind the curve on this. If you... I don't know how you're given the free will in the sense there's an argument about whether free will exists, of course, but we're not going to that one. But presumably free will allows you to make, as it were, the wrong decision. Yes. Uh, right. The whole point I've thought about artificial intelligence in, its, in, in the claims made for it, that it, in its limited area will always make 
the best decision. So if you say you're going to program in free will, are you programming in the possibility of robots, robots making the wrong decision? And why would you wish to do that? Well, I think the boat's already sailed on that, which is why the junk code becomes terribly important, because in robotics and in AI, um, deep learning gives you the ability to instruct the AI to reprogram itself if it would help it better meet its objectives. Now, there are some guardrails and parameters around that, I'm sure, but again, um, given how hard we're trying to catch up with exactly how do you give precise instructions that are the ones you really mean and given how bad we are as that at humans um it's quite difficult to know whether you've absolutely made that as safe as possible by only giving the right instructions to the ai such that it would be able to make quotes the right decision which is this thing about alignment and control but if you start thinking about our own design now whether you think that's about evolution just tinkering away to improve and improve and improve or whether you think that's god there are elements of our design that seem to be in there to help protect us since we have free will. Because if you give something like us free will, there is a high chance that that species is going to go extinct really quickly by making terrible decisions and then, you know, no more humans. So in order to make this free will species um, able to survive, you have to do a number of kind of risk management maneuvers around the design. So I mentioned two of the first sort of stabilizers. One is emotions, and that's a very practical thing, which is if you have in our species a nine-month gestation period and you have babies being um, pretty defenseless and unable to care for themselves for such a long period of time, you need something that would make mothers want to nurture them and want to carry them, um, want to ask help from other people, want to respect their elders who might also help them, all these kinds of bonds and emotions and loyalties and love that keep us together in, in tribes. So emotions is rather crucial to give us those kinds of fundamental abilities to want to relate to others of our species. And then for when you can't quite decide what to do, you, we have access to something we call intuition, which will often serve us up the answer from some subterranean place. And again, we can argue what intuition is. We're never quite sure, but but is a way of kind of channeling to us um, some wisdom, either about people and how we're reading them and whether we should trust them, um, or about situations around us. So then when we're into this idea about error, because the problem about free will is you can make mistakes, um, th there are a couple of ways we, we sort of deal with that in our own design, if you like. One is mistakes, and that's partly, as I mentioned earlier, the mechanical business of learning how to walk. You know, you fall down and then you kind of figure out how to balance. And, you know, there's lots of things where we learn by failing and picking ourselves up again, trying again. That's something they're already coding into to AI as part of um, learning technologies. But the other way that we use mistakes as a species is, as I mentioned, this idea about conscience, that over time our mistakes grieve people, they make people shout at us, they make us not popular, all those kinds of things. We get feedback from the people around us and that develops in us a sense of conscience so we try and stay on the right, on the straight and narrow in the future. And of course, if conscience is working really, really, really well in a human, you would very rarely need law. Um, and, and, you know, there's lots of questions about what's happened in society that we need to do quite so much law these days. But that that's the point of it in the design is to try and de-risk you, future-proof you, um, stop you making um, particularly errors that would harm other people, um, because that will also keep you safe. And then there's this idea of uncertainty. 
Um, because um, if you are too precipitous in your decision-making, given that you're a fallible human being with this free will, you might make many more mistakes. Um, so the idea of uncertainty is it makes you pause and stop and check before you sort of rush into anything. The final two, just to finish on that, um, that would be things that I'd be interested in understanding how they could help AI, are our ability to make meaning, which helps us want to keep on living. So even if you have safeguarded species onto this very day, what is going to make it want to get out of bed in the morning on a, on a dark day or, or recover from some harm or some problem or some death or some grief? Um, and that's about making meaning and it's about storytelling to communicate um, lessons we've learned through the centuries. And of course, the religions are particularly good at that. They have um, kept their stories largely intact for thousands of years in order to be able to communicate down the generations what good looks like, what happens to good people, what happens to bad people, why we're here, all of these kinds of wisdoms and truths, again, to try and keep the species going. So those are all ways that we in our code try and stop us um, going rogue, as it were. So I'm curious about what we could learn from that, about how we're designing AI or how we're not designing AI and what we might do about that. Well, it hasn't stopped certain people going rogue with disastrous effects, but let, let, let me come across that's a rather obvious remark, I'm afraid, but but, but that's a, do you think this is A, possible, B, desirable? The sort of line of the, the, that Eve is, is going down. Is it is it something which is a worthwhile attempt, even if it's extraordinarily difficult to implement, or not? And so I don't like to make uh, definitive statements about where we should be going as an anthropologist. I'm just very interested in the stories we're telling ourselves about these paths and these routes. And for some people, yes, absolutely, they are certain that we should develop artificial life forms. We should either develop them as our sort of mind children as a term that's used amongst transhumanists, people who think technology is the way to continue our evolution, that our mind children will follow after us and continue our form of civilization out into the stars for infinity. Others think that we should ourselves become a part of those future humans. We should ourselves become post-human through mind uploading in some form. So yes, for some people, the speculation on whether all of this is possible to make a completely human-like AI of some formats, whether it's embodied or not, or purely digital, is the end goal. Uh, for some figures who are driving funding and policy and developments like Elon Musk, there's others, of course, this is absolutely where we should be heading. We should find a way to make them as human-like as possible. And then, obviously, conversely, there are people who say this just isn't possible. As you mentioned, the efficiencies of AI at this stage of a capitalist system is to make it run effectively for particular tasks. It's not so we can have a decent conversation with it and see it as an equal. It's purely for it to be a tool. So for those people, narrow AI is good enough and we should go no further. We should make it effective and not full of disinformation and misinformation. But there are those sort of two distinct paths. The problem is that sometimes people on the more transhumanist path, path are not being that honest about why they're developing this technology, why they're funding it. Some of the figures behind open AI and generative uh, forms of AI are actually more focused on that exponential future of where we're going with artificial life forms rather than saying we're trying to make the world better as it is now. Uh, their concerns are not about the direct impact on people's lives now. The, numerous numbers of people in Africa who have been employed to make generative chat GPT work 
on pittances of wages, they're not the concern. It's the future generations to come. And we should have a very open and honest conversation about people's goals in this space. Well, uh, we pause there, if we may, at the end of uh, the second section, come back to the third to talk about, if we may, the impact of one of the things we want to talk about is the impact of this on, on, on religion, on faith, uh, and on this astonishing idea that we thought we were unique and we may be considering not making ourselves unique or even making something else superior to us, which is an extraordinary idea. Uh, thank you. This is the you're listening to Unbelievable, the show that tries to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. And it'd be hard to argue we're not doing that at the moment. And should robots, can they have souls in the future? Can they really be conscious like us? And what rights do we give them? And where does it leave conventional belief? I'm Roger Bolton. My guests are Eve Poole and Beth Singer. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Unbelievable at Premier.org. UK. Welcome back to Unbelievable. I'm Roger Bolton and my guests are Eve Poole and Beth Singler. And uh, Eve, can I come to you and pick up where we were before? Something which perplexes me is this, if we're talking about imparting into robots aspects of human, what we've thought are human nature, emotions and so on. One of the things that underpins, in, underpins religion, surely, is a sense that we're all deeply flawed uh, behind the idea of original sin and so on. And it's one of the things that we look to religion um, to protect ourselves against, or in a way, our flaws, which we're wary aware of, the irrational decisions we make, the harm we cause. And certainly the 20th century, well, 21st century now, has enough horror in it to make us aware of that. So when you talk about in transmitting or transposing some of these things to robots how do you eliminate all of those flaws in humanity that have brought us to to uh, terrible things happen I'm don't, I, I, I don't know how you as it would take the best bits of us and graft that on to robots well I think that's why we're in this mess is because we took what we thought were the best bits and put them into AI because we thought everything else was a flaw um, I'm not sure it would be possible to design a flawless anything um, because I don't know if we know enough to be able to do that. Um, but I think we're in a in a situation where we've written off a lot of our own attributes as problematic without trying to really understand why they're there. Um, now, it is true that people have done dreadful things and uh, you know you just need to turn the radio on in the morning to see that. It is also true that as a species, we're still going. And I think it means that on average, the diversity we currently have in our design seems to be resilient. And I am, I'm not sure what I think about whether we should just become robots and all push off. I, I, I haven't really got that far because as Beth says, I, I'm, I'm trying to look at the sort of short and medium term rather than um, potential disastrous futures. I'm trying to figure out what we do now. What I would observe is that when you start trying to understand our so-called flaws, you start seeing behind them a spooky wisdom, which is actually about how to keep us safe. Um, and sometimes that does go wrong, of course. Um, what One might hope that if an AI has access to way much more information and wisdom you know, through the ages, depending on what data it's been trained on, 
it might make better decisions, um, particularly if it has the kind of uh, attributes we have that try and, and help us make best quality decisions, even from a, a position of not always Yeah, but knowing. you use the phrase like better, and that's a val- better is a value judgment. I mean, to, to some extent, religion is irrational. It stands opposed to some aspects of, you could say, Darwinism. It does say... We don't believe in the survival of the fittest. Uh, we are not going to be the predators that others are. We are not going to say this person, because they're born disabled in some way, is of essentially less value than some, even, even a great scientist. They may be of greater value to society in one way, but as an individual, religion tends to say everyone's created in the image of God. Everybody is valuable in the image of God. Um, it's an irrational thing to do standing back. You could argue. Well, so here's an example of, of where where religion is is helpful. Um, thinking about rationality. Um, so if you think about um, programming ethics into AI, and if you think about driverless cars, and you think about um, you know the logic of capitalism in terms of the sort of go to ethic, it's all about utilitarianism. It's all about business cases and optimizing outputs and all that kind of stuff. Because then you can prove to the public or your investors or whoever you need to um, that you know the outcomes are good. Um, so during COVID, um, there was a suspicion that uh, in the UK, the government had been pursuing a herd immunity strategy. And it became apparent that that would involve, um, you know, throwing all the old people and disabled people and people with pre-existing conditions under a bus uh, in order to save the sort of um, better specimens of humanity uh, in some sort of ghastly Darwinian intervention to kind of save the NHS a load of money. Um, and of course, the the reaction from people was absolute disgust and horror that that's my granny you're talking about and it's my child you're talking about and I'm not happy about that because um, the rationality in religion as you say is about the dignity of the person um, and it's about being able to entertain the idea that utilitarianism may be a very useful way of understanding how to optimize outcomes but also having a default in our ideology um, that there is something about the dignity of the person which that would absolutely trespass on, which overrides the business case of herd immunity. And there are loads of examples where we're not really having those conversations about what precisely are those overrides, why we still don't want to clone. Because, you know, one way to sort out AI is just to allow cloning um, with, with a few enhancers. Um, it's a damn sight quicker than trying to copy these bodies uh, if you actually just copied them. But of course, we don't do that because we're very worried about eugenics, because we've learned the hard way that eugenics is a is an absolute disaster. Um, yeah, well, so as you say, we learned the hard way, but we not before, not not before some terrible things happened, not least in certain hospitals in Germany in the late 1930s and early 40s. Um, can, can I come across Beth on this? If if one of the, if this were possible to do, we confront a a situation where we, we surely potentially we are we are helping to create uh, some form of species, species. I'm not sure about the language I can use here, but entity which is superior to us. And if it has free will, presumably it might take the view that we are dispensable, and it would be sensible since it is a more advanced form of life, if we can use that term, uh, that to dispense with us. Uh, you know, in other words, we are helping to sow the seeds of our own destruction here. Now, is this science fiction? Or are we seriously now facing the prospect um, uh, of of helping to create a superior life force to the to ourselves, the end of our uniqueness in other ways? 
I mean, this is a very strong narrative in those transhumanist spaces that I was talking about before, that there's the fear of an existential risk, that literally the end of humanity could be brought about because we're replacing ourselves. If you imagine the hierarchical pyramid of intelligence, we've placed ourselves on the top. We have the ability to manipulate our environment. We have the ability to control lower intelligences, and we've popped ourselves at the top and if we get replaced at the top, that's going to be disaster. That is, that is a very strong narrative. It sort of ignores some of the presumption about who's at the top, how we've encountered other intelligences before, and how we've learned to treat them better than we did initially. I mean, women are a prime example of this. We weren't always treated like we were at the top of the pyramid along with the men. Uh, but over time, and not universally, but over time, women get treated a little bit better than we have done in the past. So some of the debate is about whether recognizing this other intelligence might be a way of forming a relationship with it that means that we aren't replaced at the top of this pyramid, if you believe in that pyramid, that actually we might have a more uh, sympathetic relationship with an, an artificial life form. Let's call it that if we want to. Uh, that there's parallels drawn with narratives about what would happen if we encountered aliens. Would that be an immediate disaster because they're superior to us in some way? Or would they be more paternalistic or maternalistic and decide to include us in their larger society and civilization? So there's these sorts of debates. And yes, they're very informed by the imagery of science fiction. And it's worth bearing in mind that science fiction exists as a literary and fictional form because of tension. You can't have a plot without some form of conflict. So you have to have some form of dystopia or some arch nemesis. There's, there's a sort of format of that that's being transposed onto our discussions about AI. So we start seeing AI fitting in those spaces, but also as my work is about AI and religion, it's fitting into religious spaces as well. So as I said, AI is increasingly being discussed in a godlike manner. People's language is very religious when they talk about AI because it reminds them of their cultural context and their religious forms that they're familiar with. So we have to be aware of the stories that we're telling ourselves about this and how that can obscure, as Eva's also said, we want to focus on the near future and what's actually happening now. And actually, if we get too caught up in our fears about a superior intelligence that's going to take over the world and get rid of us, we won't see the very inferior forms of intelligence and misinformation and disinformation that are already shaping our world as it exists now. Eve, can I bring us, we're going towards the end of our, our discussions, bring, bring us back perhaps to the impact of all this on the religious and of the future of faith, whether it needs to, to adapt in some way. Some people, some Christians in particular, uh, listening or watching this may feel uh, that, A, we were unique. We are created in the image of God, robots won't be, bluntly, that we're given and have been given a special place at the top of creation. What you're now saying is that at the very least we need to share that in some ways. Um, do you think see any of this as a threat to what we might call conventional religion, or is it just another challenge that religion can adapt to if it concentrates on things like love, truth, beauty, and so on? I think lucky people who are religious, if you think about this, if you are a secular person looking at this and you have a materialistic narrative, which is just about evolution exponentially improving us, then of course, if there are technologies available that would improve us, that don't involve us, then th that would be logical in a next step. Um, 
Because in order to believe in humans, you have to believe in God. Because there should be nothing special about us if we're just a species like any other species. You know, what's to say the mice or the dolphins or the mountains or the trees shouldn't be the apex uh, species? You, you know, it, it's outrageous, really, to argue that that humans are special. Um, well, it may be outrageous, but there in the beginning of Genesis, sorry to interrupt you, there at the beginning of Genesis and so on would be us being given dominion over animals and, and whatever, and that we are made. Exactly. So yeah. the only way we're special is because God made us. And that makes us special. But if you don't believe in God, then you can't really argue that humans are special. Or you can argue conversely and say that lots of things are special. I mean, we, we've used AI and we've unpacked what that term means. We haven't unpacked religion as much to say that there are various different religious interpretations that actually say all the elements of creation, however you define the act of creation, are very special. And I see that there are uniquenesses around that we don't need a hierarchical pyramid form with dominionism that leads to environmental harm because we can leave it all behind. We can think about how we exist in an ecosystem or a cosmology of potential other beings. I mean, this is one argument from people who are more panpsychic to say that AI will be part of that creation because it's something emerging in that space. We have to be aware. I'm an anthropologist. I'm thinking about lots of different religions. There's lots of different attitudes to this as well, not just the more hierarchical. I think I think that's true, and I think particularly in Christianity, the thing that is is of note is that Jesus was a human person, so God incarnated and chose that species to be to to be God. Um, so so my point about believing in humans and believing in God is that particularly for Christians, we have a particular reason to think that humans are special and precious because we were made in God's image and God used us when he wanted to incarnate. Um, and so that that's one of the reasons I think Christians need to be absolutely in this conversation, because it's a very unusual perspective, I suppose. It's just one of, of, of many religious perspectives. But but it is a, a unique argument for, for, for human exceptionalism, um, because otherwise I don't think there is one. Uh, and that's really where I ended up in my thinking. There are also Christian theologians, because Christianity is not a monolithic form either. There are Christian theologians discussing AI who are thinking more about it in terms of a co-creation. They're looking at the transitions of ideas of Imago Day that it wasn't always likeness. Now we're talking more about relationality. It's not just functionist. So there has been developments in that theological argument. As I say, I come at it as an anthropologist observing these different trends in the theologies, but there are different interpretations of how we all fit together in a cosmology of beings, even in Christianity. But Beth, is there a difference? And perhaps there isn't a difference, put me right on this, between when we're talking in conventional, as we're religious or Christian terms, about creation and our responsibility for creation. But now we're beginning to talk about us creating something, not God creating, us creating something that has never existed. Well, again, Is that unique or have we been involved in doing that in many other ways? It, again, I can point towards people who talk about continuous creation of God, right? Through evolution, through other formats, through even techni as a form of an aspect of the creation of God. So, I mean, it's, it's not without the bounds of possibility that a... If you believe in an omnipotent deity, then that's one of the forms in which creation could happen. And do you think this Just is to that these are other narratives that are possible? And, and is another narrative possible that people start worship, worshiping robots? Well, AI new religious movements do already exist. They already exist. Uh, they already exist. So yeah, I've been studying a few for a while, but it's uh, 
it's it's very fluid between the more kind of implicit religious forms of people seeing AI and describing in godlike terms and people who are forming more bounded organizations. So some of my work is about the future of religion in the sense of the future of the institution of religion and developments in spirituality in digital spaces. So yes, yeah, so you're seeing new formations of communities around the concept of AI as a godlike entity. And Eve, do you see that as a threat? I mean, you know, we've, we've heard very recently, there's just been a survey in, in this country, in England, about uh, Church of England priests. I think Linda Woodhead conducted it and suggested that they are very pessimistic about the future, of, if not Christianity, then the, the adherence to it and so on. Um, but there's still spiritual hunger. I mean, the thing that strikes me is, is, is the obvious point. Actually, in some ways, Linda Woodhead's earlier studies showed this, that people are not abandoning religion. They are making their own journeys. Uh, maybe it's a pick-and-mix religion, they, they lose faith in established religion, but the need is there and the journey is there. Could the journey logically end up for large numbers of people in a worship of robots? I think that if, you, if you're trying to understand what, or, or trying to discover what a, a religious approach should be to this, um, then I think that pretty much all the religions are about love. And they're about what are we doing in love at the moment, not in fear about are we going to be taken over? Is it game over? Have we deserved it? You know, will someone, you know, all of that stuff. It is speculation and it is fear and uh, and therefore a lack of trust in an omnipotent God if you believe in one. So there is something about love. And as you say, we have been made in God's image and now we're trying to make something in our own image and doing it rather badly. So my argument is, if we really loved these things that we're trying to create in our image, wouldn't we do a better job of it? And then we have to just leave the future up to how well we've done that. In the same way that you have your children, you try and do the very best you can with them. And ultimately, you have to let them go. And you have to take that risk. And, and I think we could speculate about what may or may not happen in the future. But at the moment, that's up to us. And I think we have to stop sleepwalking and imagining someone else is going to get involved and get stuck in and try and figure out what we can do to try and do the best we can in the situation we find ourselves in. But the two things that immediately, you know, come in my mind is this. One is with children, they are children, they have a long time to grow up. While they're growing up over a long period, we have the opportunity of influencing, of course, for good or for evil. And that when they are growing up and go off, they're unlikely to be able to find them such a situation where they can destroy Destroy us, and I suppose they, there's a difference here with robots. I mean, could you have baby robots? Could you have the, you know, this robot must go to university? I mean, I, sorry, these are, I know these are naive terms, but the sense in which a lot of what we have learned. ChatGPT is a good example, because ChatGPT is like a slightly crummy teenage intern at the moment. So you have interns rocking up to your office. You're trying to be really nice to them because they're probably your boss's son, you know, on his gap year or something. And, you know, you give them a piece of work to do. They come up with something that's frankly a bit flaky, but you don't want to upset them. So you're sort of all very upbeat about it and you stay up all night correcting it. Um, and then hopefully they'll do better next time. And chat GPT is kind of like that at the moment. You know, and as Beth says, you, you ask it questions about yourself and it just lies. It sort of says all these things which it can easily find out about you and then hyperbolizes in the most magnificent fashion to sort of cheer you up about how famous you are in the same way that a kind of rather creepy intern would be doing. Um, and so, so chat GPT is, is in training mode in the same way that a teenager would be. And we need to train it and we need to train it really well so that actually it isn't garbage in, garbage out. 
So I, I think there are some corollaries. I mean, you can stretch this metaphor of parenting to destruction because, you know, they are different from us. They are not human. Um, but if we are attempting to make anything in our own image, my point is that we need to do that much better than we are. Uh, Beth, yeah, let me make you representative of academia entirely, <laughs> represent all academia just for the moment. What can you do with students who come to you, faced looking to that future? How do you begin the process of preparing them for it? It's really difficult because I also, like Eve, I have I have one child, she has two, but I have an 11-year-old boy and, you know, trying to talk to him about what he's interested in. I want to encourage him if he has creative passions, but I'm also seeing the p possible death of the creative industries at the moment. It's a very real fact this this could happen. Um, so it's difficult and my students are a little bit older than that. They're already at university. They're already choosing to study arts and humanities subjects because they come to me to be taught about digital religion. So they they already have that passion for the areas in which Eve has described as as not the you know the purely efficient areas of subjects of STEM and so forth that they also do some STEM subjects. It is difficult to know what path to suggest, but all we can do is from a grassroots level really vote with our feet and not take the easy path of saying, well, I need an image for the front cover of my book. I had this recently. I have a book coming out hopefully in the next year. Um, and the suggestions for covers a lot of the time were AI art. And I said, no, I don't want to. I want to have something that's been created by a human being. I'm making this distinct choice. I ended up commissioning a friend of mine who's an artist to make the cover. We can make choices. Some things are taken out of our hands at a very high level, but at a grassroots level, we can protest. The A-level the a results a couple of years ago with an algorithm determined grades. Students were out on the streets with placards. Amazon workers are standing with placards. We have to support the people in Hollywood who are striking right now because they want to protect themselves from performance capture if they're actors. They want to protect themselves if they're writers and they're going to be replaced by chat GPT. We have to stand up and take a stance. And, it's, and do you think, Eve, that there's a specific role here for the churches and church leadership? Because... I mean, I have the good fortune to uh, be in St. Orm's Diocese in England. There's a particularly good um, uh, priest there who uh, given talks and so on. But I don't know why it's true or not, but it appears to me the diocese doesn't really appreciate what he's doing or giving great, great prominence. Do you think this needs to be a wake-up call for organized religion and in the case of the Church of England to actually start, not start the process, I suppose, but at least push the process of of getting people to prepare, because presumably you have to do two things, which are very difficult, but politicians, I suppose, have always had to do. One is it's an alarm, a wake-up call, and the second thing, give hope. Because if you just give alarm, it's all hopeless. People sort of, well, why bother? So somehow you've got to alert people, then you've got to give them hope. Is that what you're trying to do in your book? And do you think there's a, a responsibility on religious leadership now to do that? Absolutely. And I think it is a call to arms because um, in the Church of England, if you take over a new parish, um, the bishop comes to install you and he hands you a bit of paper and says, take this cure of souls, which is yours and mine. And there is this very old notion of cure of souls and that that's what someone is doing in a parish, is every single soul in that parish is their responsibility and they need to take care of them. So all religions, but, but Christianity in this instance, have a tradition of being specialists in the cure of souls. So all of these things I talked about, about emotions and storytelling, all of these things which could go so badly wrong, one of the functions of religion is to try and 
through liturgy and belief and worship and all of those things keep us on track. And actually, we're experts at that. All these vicars who up and down the country go to that church every Sunday to remind people of the stories about what happens if you're bad. You know, that is exactly what we need because we need to be curing our souls and we need to be thinking about what our souls are, what the attributes are of them that need protecting and curing. And in, in my argument, being generous about that that understanding in terms of helping inform better design of AI. So I think it is a moment where the church could really add huge value. You haven't quite answered my question because you made a powerful case for what the church should be doing. You haven't told me whether you think actually there's that awareness at the at leadership uh, that it needs to be doing that and it's going to implement it. You know, I see a lot of reorganization. I see a lot of worries about declining attendances. I see a lot of concerns about churches crumbling and what we're going to do about buildings. I don't hear that much about this. And I mean, they need to get a move on. The issues are so well, the complex. Well, been involved for a while in the national conversations about regulation. Um, they're obviously involved um, through the House of Lords of various committees in some of these discussions about ethical AI. Um, there have been quite a lot of attempts within the Church of England to be part of those conversations and ecumenically. Um, and I know, for instance, the Church Chimes is doing a massive special edition on this. There's going to be webinars. There's there was loads of sessions at Greenbelt this weekend, which is a largely Christian festival. There's a huge groundswell of, of engagement around this issue and more and more people finding each other to talk about what they think AI means. What does it mean practically in a pastoral sense? You know, if an AI has written your wedding service, does that mean it's sacramental or not? You know, there's all these <laughs> very deep pastoral questions, let alone would it be a sacrament if a robot took it? Um, so this is something where the church is already engaging. But I think there is still, as Beth says, an obsession with sci-fi and therefore an awful lot of, um, you know, extreme utopic, you know, dystopic thinking that is is um, paralyzing people. And I suppose my my request is that the experts stand up. You know, all these people who make a living out of cure of souls are really good at this stuff, and it's the skill set we need now. And Beth, do you see that from your anthropological, shall we say, anthropologist perspective, that happening? And do you think there is a spiritual hole that needs to be filled in this debate? You know, I talked about, if you like, the sense of possibilities from engineering, from other point of view and the pessimism that it can have, but still there is a spiritual role here that needs to be emphasized. Um, so I, I have had conversations with people from many uh, higher levels of many different religions and I've had particular conversations with people in the Church of England about questions about sort of divestment from tech companies that could be developing AI, whether that's a concern. There's a lot of obviously existing conversation about divestment from BP or Shell because we're worried about climate change, but should we also think about the entanglements of the institution of the church with technology companies and where their investments are lying? So there's that kind of conversation. But you know, it's not too many years ago that uh, Church of England released an Alexa skill so you can use your home Alexa to find out more information about the Church of England. And all that, again, is based on machine learning systems that are drawing data from people who don't always know that their data is being used. So there is this, this entanglement when religions adopt technology, they have to choose which forms of technology, but they have to also be aware of what kind of changes of shape are going to happen to their institution as that technology becomes very ubiquitous. 
COVID-19 was a massive example of this, the quick move online of church spaces. But what did that do to worship? What did that do to the church institution? There's a two-way street there. Uh, and your second point, uh, the thirst for religiosity, I yeah, think. Whether or, not, whether or not that is just a constant. In other words, it's something which is built into us so that we still will have a spiritual hunger that will need to be fulfilled yeah. somehow. There's, there's a lot of debates in the anthropology of religion where that comes from. I tend to avoid what's known as a deprivation theory, an idea that we're always lacking something and we try and fill that gap, like God of the gaps of our interiority, that we always need religion. And that can be quite a pejorative interpretation of why people are religious, because they've got this need or this pathology that needs to be sorted. So I avoid that. Maybe because it's true. I mean, we may have the well, need because there's truth there. My, my, my interpretation tends to be, yes, there is a constant tendency towards meaning making and storytelling and we fulfill that in religious and spiritual ways. And when you're surrounded by the aesthetics of technology, of course, that is going to get enmeshed in your meaning making. The meaning making that was happening 2000 years ago in the Middle East is very different to the meaning making happening now in our, you know, quotation marks, Western or first world civilizations. So yes, of course, you're going to have new religious movements that focus on technology. They're not even that new. We're talking about 30 or 40 years of them with the rise of the internet. And prior to that, spiritualism was you know, foundationally infect affected by the telegraph system. All these things are well studied in the sociology and anthropology and history of religion. So yes, we're going to have them. It doesn't mean people are deprived in particular ways. But established religions have to be aware of the the, the two-way streets that's going to happen as people get more interested in technology and it affects their religious observance. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring our discussion to a close. I'm very, very grateful personally, and I hope, I'm sure the listeners would be, for, for what you, the light you've shone on an extraordinary future that we're all facing. Uh, Beth Singler, Eve Poole, thank you very much indeed. I hope you all enjoyed the discussion. And as always, let us know what you think. Uh, but uh, for at least until the next time, goodbye. We hope you enjoyed that discussion. Do let us know what you think by emailing us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you could leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or Twitter, which is at UnbelievableFE. If you register on our website, then you will get access to all the content on the website, as well as bonus materials such as videos and ebooks as well as the opportunity to win our monthly book draw. So sign up for our newsletter through premierunbelievable.com for your chance to win. That's all for this week. We will see you next time for more Unbelievable. <laughs>